From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Those books, they originally came out in 1965. 1965 so, yeah. Yeah, so it, it comes from magic mushrooms. It would make sense with yeah, that era. Of from that period of, of experimentation. Yeah. Mm. We can't uh, overwarn, uh, otherwise people won't believe the orange warnings when they come. Uh, so the warnings that were put out were, were based on uh, the most solid evidence at the time. He's in 74, so I joined the club, I'm the same age. Just so you enjoy it while you have it. No point in sitting at home waiting to die. Coming up on this special March edition of Playback Daily. Hot or not? Dune Part 2 reviewed and rated. Met Aaron on how they missed the snowpocalypse and taking on ageism in the coach driving industry. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that always worries about yellow snow warnings. Let's start Playback Daily today with Oliver Callan doing some musings on how, after a long February, March will be a busy month. We've actually loads to prepare for now that it is officially March. I know we're distracted by the weather, but it is a busy, busy month in our lives. The spring begins. There's going to be Mother's Day. There are two bank holidays because you've got Patrick's Day plus Easter weekend. Two referendums. The time is going to change. It's all going to happen in this month. You want to be ready. And of course, you've got to make sure that all your plastic bottles or cans don't get any dents in them so that you can claim back your 15 cent because, you know, you'd be, you'd be stressed and you're going to have to look after them like they're little, little babies. And then you go back in, you, you go to the machine and it prints out the thing and then you, you go into the shop and you get the voucher and then you're in the supermarket and they're going to ask you questions like, do you have a car parking ticket? Do you have a rewards points thing? Do you want cash back? And you'll be fierce flustered. Life, life is very, very, very difficult, which is why we get excited when it turns white outside. Let it snow, let it snow and snow. Sorry about, sorry about that, but we've had a tough week here. We've had a tough week in this programme. Self-inflicted, it has to be said. But a week of hard-hitting items, including, of course, school refusal, means there's some room for, well, casual Friday. Now, on a lighter note to do with schools and how, the, how are the, the kids out there, in England, um, a headmaster has announced that they're going to allow fake eyelashes to be part of the uniform for girls over there because the attendance in the school was being affected by students taking time off to either get appointments for their fake eyelashes or they weren't attending school, uh, they weren't showing up because they didn't want to have them removed and the difficulty of removing them and all that crack. So the solution there was to change the uniform rules for girls to wear their fake eyelashes due to mental health considerations is what they're saying. Uh, This will give memories... Uh, will we'll provoke memories, or invoke, I should say, memories of, of for, for our listeners today of nuns at the door making sure that you'd only one pair of earrings on at a time, that your hair was a certain way, and um, or according to one of our eyewitnesses this morning of the team, uh, to make sure you belt up your gabardine coat. You're going, a gabardine coat in, in the school. Yes, that was that was a thing. There are still strict rules on um, school uniforms. Uh, I know that... Uh, we had a grey uniform and when the grey denim started becoming a thing and stonewashed jeans and then Doc Martens reappeared where there were supposed to be sensible shoes, there were always rows and not to mention the long hair brigade. Uh, surely the long hair people are, are gone now, aren't they? That was long hair, the long hair police. Uh, speaking of runners, you can wear whatever you want. Black Nike Air Max, very popular among the school kids in Ireland, of course. Ben Affleck has just been photographed out and about because he's a, he's a sneaker head. He loves his runners. And he's wearing the, uh, uh, something from, what is it? Oh, it? This is the Nike 
SD, SB Dunks. He's well known for the sneakerheads. They know that he wears the SB Dunks. But they have an Irish twist. This will be connected to the kind of Boston Irish thing, uh, the part of which uh, Ben Affleck is part of that community up there. Um, so they're Irish-inspired uh, Nike shoes, decked out in the colours of the tricolour, off-white base, panels of deep green bisected by the fiery orange swoosh. The Nike swoosh is in orange. And... No shamrocks, but there's an Irish harp stitched on the lateral heel and the word era, uh, which uh, you know they're pointing out here to the American audience, the Gaelic word for Ireland, embroidered across the back in place of the standard Nike branding. And I looked at the pictures when I saw them black and white, first of all, going, they're quite kind of nice. You know, the, the harp is acceptable. It's not as twee as the shamrock. Um, but unfortunately, when you see them in full colour, full colour, you're like, oh God, no, they're absolutely hideous. They're just very, I immediately saw Patrick's Day, you know, in the, the wrong, wrong way. It's acceptable on Patrick's Day because uh, I like a bit of kind of um, ugly Irish um, paddy whackery on Patrick's Day. It's acceptable. It is as if, imagine Carol's gift shop did Nike runners. There you go. That's what's here. You can envisage exactly what's happening there. What an unpleasant image. Can't really imagine Ben Affleck shopping in Carol's, but I suppose stranger things have happened. Wonder where I can get a pair of those hideous era SB dunks. Or maybe I should invest in some exterior wall art instead. Banksy. Getting a Banksy on your house is something that people would really kind of dream of. You know, it's up there with winning the lottery because you get a Banksy on the gable of your house. That's going to be worth a fortune. You're going to be laughing all the way to the Banksy. But you have to be careful what you wish for because the street art... Um, is a bit of a disaster for people over in England. This only happens in England. I don't think Banksy has painted anything outside of maybe uh, much as far as Wales. Uh, but uh, the, the latest Banksy's come on the market. It was a giant seagull eating chips from a skip. I remember that. Painted on the end of a house in Suffolk in 2021. So the owner has decided to, of the house has decided to sell it. So it had to be removed in two big pieces and it's weighing 11 tonnes. And last year... Uh, a couple of roofing, a roofing contractor said the cost of removal of something like this from the gable of your house could be as much as £200,000. And he said the council had threatened to put a, a preservation order on the piece that he had, but which would make him responsible for the maintenance cost. So you can't just ignore it and do nothing um, because the, they'll come after you. And he said it would cost about forty grand a year in sterling uh, to keep the Banksy protected from the elements and so on. Um, so the price of this work, this is the seagull eating chips from a skip, um, in, in, not including the skip. Yes, yeah, so the skip, of course, which is to get in there. And they had to remove the skip because people start fly tipping and all of that. The seagullmural.com, uh, and it's, uh, you have to apply to get the price. But they reckon it'll be in the hundreds of thousands because of the sheer cost. It's a nightmare. Banksy shows up and starts spray, spray painting. He has painted in New York and also in the Gaza Strip. So he's painted around around the place, Banksy, the campaigner who remains anonymous. Isn't it mad all the same how a guy can paint a giant mural on the gable end of a house and remain anonymous? Yeah, but maybe he's just trying to ignore the growing excitement this deep into awards season. The Brit Awards are happening this week. The Brit Awards. Um, we have some Irish interest in the Brit Awards. CMAT is nominated in the International Artist of the Year category alongside Kylie Minogue, Lana Del Rey, Miley Cyrus, Olivia Rodrigo and Taylor Swift. Good luck to you, C-Matt. I hope you found something to wear. That's what she was shouting out on Instagram going, 
uh, when she was nominated but it's very exciting for the Irish artists and Jazzy of course as well International Song of the Year she's up against Doja Cat and Billie Eilish looking forward to the Brits that'll be over the weekend um, Ray has already won a, a Brit award her real name Rachel Keane we think there's an Irish connection there has been named Songwriter of the Year at the Brit Awards so we're looking forward to that mm. If there are international artists involved why is it called the Brits? Doesn't make a whole heap of sense to me but what do I know? A little stardust to end the brief musing monologue from this morning's Oliver Callan. While many of us stared out the window at the unexpected snowscape and others struggled with their rear-wheel drive going up slippery hills, some people wondered what happened over in Glasnevin. Why didn't Medairn warn us about the impending snowpocalypse? Claire Byrne brought Brandon Craig from Met Aaron in this morning and demanded that he explain himself. Well, actually, she was a little more subtle than that. This does seem to have caught people by surprise. I mean, the snow is falling heavily here outside the window in Dublin. When was the yellow snow and ice warning issued? So there was a warning issued yesterday afternoon um, by five o'clock, but that was mainly for rain, as that's what the models were predicting. Um, They were predicting that the front that would move down would turn to sleet or snow over higher ground. So we added into the warning that a mix of sleet or snow at times would lead to hazardous travelling conditions because of that risk. But it wasn't clear until this morning uh, that it was going to be as heavy as it is and as widespread snowfall as it is. Uh, the models had the freezing level too high up uh, in the uh, over hills and, and higher areas uh, but it turns out that the because of the complex dynamics in the upper air that pushed the snow down further than what it should have uh, and that's what led to the lying snow mm-hmm. over most areas. So it crept up on you as well is what you're saying? Slightly, there was a signal for sleet or snow, but it was over higher ground than what actually uh, ended up happening. Yeah, because people, we're hearing this morning, people are getting in touch saying it's taking them hours to get to work. Traffic is at a standstill, certainly in Dublin on many routes. And people are asking, why isn't this now or wasn't it as of early this morning an orange warning? Uh, well, an orange warning uh, demands that over uh, higher than three centimetres uh, of snowfall falls within uh, the day's period. Uh, and certainly if, if that does uh, transpire in many counties, that, that's a difference from that um, that event actually being predictable. Snow is notoriously the most difficult uh, meteorological parameter to, to forecast for in Ireland. And if we had a, a crystal ball and we knew exactly what was going to happen, maybe that would have been an orange warning. But given the risk at the time, um, we don't take our, our warnings lightly at all. And mm-hmm. uh, we can't uh, overwarn. Uh, otherwise, people won't believe the orange warnings when they come. Uh, so the that were put out were, were based on uh, the most solid evidence at the time. Okay. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but it was a, it was a short turnaround uh, between what actually transpired and what the models and had as, at the time. As you look at it now and as you look at the forecast for the next couple of hours, Brandon, do you think that that warning might change and be elevated to orange at this stage? It's unlikely at this stage. It, it, it should transition to uh, rainfall over the next few hours. Uh, so uh, an orange warning... Uh, wouldn't be appropriate uh, at this time. Mm -hmm. But you accept people are in a very difficult situation this morning. They probably left their homes when they shouldn't have done, really, because they're stuck in two hours. That's if they manage to travel safely. We know there's a good few bangs and tips happening as cars slide around the place on some roads, certainly on the East Coast. 
It certainly is difficult uh, conditions out there this morning, but I would uh, encourage people to look at the forecast as uh, just because something isn't in a warning, we do forecast what what is likely to happen. And there is mentions of sleet or snow in the forecast uh, since the, the last few days. Um, and I would uh, encourage people to take note of that. OK, so, so what is the outlook? How long is this likely to last? Uh, so the front that's lying over the country at the moment is making its way southwards. The, the pivot point is kind of in the Irish Sea, just east of Dublin. Uh, so it's the east which is most likely to get the most persistent uh, amounts of uh, pre- uh, precipitation falls. Uh, but as it moves south, it will turn to rain. Um, over higher ground, over the southern half of the country, over Munster, uh, you will get more sleet or snow there. Um, so people, particularly over, over higher ground there, should take note of that. Um, but over the next few days, it will transition into a bit of a northerly airflow where we just get showers moving down over the country and they'll most likely be of rain uh, with sleet or snow again over higher ground uh, but nothing like today is expected for tomorrow Saturday and then Sunday it, it changes to a, a northwesterly um, which again is just showers for uh, northwest and parts there uh, dying out as they make their way in okay. Claire also spoke to Sean O'Neill from Transport Infrastructure Ireland about the main roads this morning. There have been incidents. This storm is basically kind of, or the snow event has really been localized. And in particular, we're looking down at the Dundrum section on Junction 13. There was an incident, obviously, due to the uh, inclement weather and the bad snow. And that then caused a backup. And then the timing of this event as well, where it's happening during peak travel times in the morning, has really added to the impact. But I'm happy to say that the entire maintenance operations program is fully underway. People are out there dealing with the incidents. And, um, you know, we will manage it during the day so that it will be manageable for the evening commute. So what does that mean? You have gritters out now, do you? Yes. Yeah, we have we have gritters out. The full winter maintenance program kicked off yesterday evening. We got the alert along with our colleagues at the local authority level throughout the country. This has been primarily an East Coast event, and, but it's very localised as well, as, as we've heard from the other um, participants here, that high elevation depending on the topography, the airflow, everything else, you might get a lot of snow at certain points in a county or a land base and then nothing uh, a couple of uh, kilometres away. So it's something very localised that we're managing and everyone's working Mm -hmm. uh, diligently on it today. But you are hearing about problems uh, around the, the road network nationally, are you? In some parts. Yes, we are. There was yes. There, there's again more east coast. Um, you know, you're looking at Castle Warden in in uh, on the N7 between Junction Five and Six. There was again uh, an incident due to the inclement weather, etc. The snow and ice. Um, but we are we've been there. People are dealing with the incident, and uh, everyone's safe and sound. But again, it causes big delays because of the traffic levels. Mm-hmm. So it, it, these things do happen during this sort of event. And unfortunately, they do cause a significant impact, especially with the timing and the volumes of traffic. But um, we have full crew operations out there now and uh, dealing with it as we speak. And then Claire asked Conor Faulkner, CEO of the Royal Irish Automobile Club, which sounds like something from the late 19th century, what motorists should know when they find themselves unexpectedly caught in a snowstorm. Yeah, it's a dangerous morning, isn't it? Um, particularly uh, along the East Coast and in, in the Dublin area. Um, the driver has got to be extra careful on a day like today. Things like braking distances cannot be relied upon. So really you have to drive very, very slowly. It, it's all about gentle manoeuvres. No sudden movements in the car, no sharp acceleration, no sharp braking. Um, you also very obviously have to, got to keep an eye out in an urban environment for pedestrians. It's not just slippy on the roads, it's 
slippy on the footpaths. Um, there won't be that many cyclists out and about today, but there are some intrepid people who've just got to get where they're going. So again, you've got to be very careful of vulnerable road users. A person could slip off the curb and in front of your car, and, and that can happen in the blink of an eye, so you've got to be careful. Actually, Claire, I worry a little bit more from a safety point of view about what might happen later on. If we get any sort of a freeze, um, then you could have sort of slush and ice uh, lingering on secondary roads. And and I know you were just talking to Sean O'Neill. On a day like this, you have to be very, very careful on our motorways, those high-speed flowing roads. They're ordinarily very safe, uh, but they're very vulnerable on days like today. And the slightest incident can, can escalate uh, so again, the, the, the key to it really is the simplest message of all. You've just got to slow down. Yeah, and maybe try to avoid the journey if you can today until this thing passes. Yeah, a fair few of us obviously stuck in it because, um, well, it's, it's, it's unfair to say that there was no warning, but I think it's reasonable to say we didn't expect it to be as bad as this. So lots of people would have set off out or would have thrown open the curtains this morning thinking they were going to take their bike into town and, uh, and you know, to be confronted with snow. So there's a touch of sort of novelty and uh, these things do cause a lot of congestion and there was horrendous congestion in some localised parts of the Dublin area this morning and, um, yeah, unfortunately, that rather goes with the territory when you get a day like today. Connor Faulkner, CEO of the RAIC, talking driving in the snow with Claire Byrne this morning. Let's be careful out there. Jerry Martin was on Liveline this afternoon telling Joe Duffy about his coach driving experience as an older driver. I was uh, away from last Friday uh, driving a group of young French um, students from the United Arab Emirates. Okay. And uh, I picked them up on Friday. We drove for... uh, The first night was in Navan. Then we were two nights in Enniskillen, two nights in Derry, then in Belfast. And I'm 74 years of age. The man I drive for, Pader O'Brien is his name, he's from Donegal. Yeah. He pays a premium of an extra seven hundred euros a year for me, so as I can drive his coach. He tried to—I uh, had a medical appointment yesterday morning, and he tried to hire a car for me. And they wanted two hundred and twenty euros to hire the car, plus a three hundred euro subsidy because my age—I'm over seventy. Okay. And instead, he had to send the driver on one of McGinley's coaches all the way to Letterkenny to get his own private car. Then he had to drive from there to Belfast to meet me so I so I could get home for this medical appointment. But the point I'm making is that people who are over 70 are being discriminated against left, right and centre as regards a lot of things. And did it, did it give a reason? Like, have you got... Yeah, have, because I'm over 70. That's it? You didn't bust your yeah. no claims bonus or you didn't... No, nothing. Nothing. Sure, that's ageist. Yeah. Um... Bus Aiden has uh, have uh, stopped uh, drivers driving at uh, 70 years of age. Yeah. But I believe now that there's rumours, I don't know how true it is, that they've upped the age now to 75. No, they haven't. So I, heard, they I heard Stephen Kent, the CEO of Bus Aiden on McCormack the other evening, and he's adamant. He he kept going on about 70, and Cormac kept pressing him, as is his wont, uh, to say, where is the evidence? And um, he mentioned some Canadian survey and where, uh, Jerry? have you heard where is where you, you're allowed to drive a bus or a coach for a private company, 
and obviously yeah. it's a very responsible company, well-known company. They have yeah. no, they have no problem with you, obviously. Absolutely none. Okay. Um, As but, a matter of fact, Joe, the stupidity of it is this. Yeah. I am not allowed to do schoolwork for bus Ayrton. Ah. Right. I yeah. cannot go and pick up students. Uh, we say for like I live in Bray. I was doing a school run from Roundwood down okay. to a secondary school in Kilcoole. Okay. The moment I turned 70, that had to stop. But yes, I can go to that school, pick up that group of kids and go away on a five-day tour. Yeah. I mean, how stupid is the whole argument about 70 years of age? I was yesterday in St. Michael's Hospital having a, a pre-op medical. And okay. I said to the nurse, I said, is that blood pressure good? No, she says, it's not good. She says, it's perfect. So... There you are. I'm in, as John Wayne would say, I'm in fine fettle. Okay. Now, um, if if Bus Aaron, why don't they, they have this arbitrary cutoff of 70. Um, they say yeah. it's not arbitrary. They say there are studies. I, I didn't see the, I, he mentioned a Canadian study. Um, but surely the way round it then, if they are worried, is I'll do a medical when I'm 71 and I'll do a medical when I'm 72 Thanks. if you want. Exactly. Exactly. Because they're throwing... Absolutely, there's no problem. How long have you been driving, Jerry? Uh, uh, when you say, how long have I been driving? <laughs> since I was 18. But okay. I've been driving tractors and didn't yeah. even know what else while I was a kid. Okay, so, you're, years of age, you so, know? You're, so you're driving on the road for 56 years? Yeah. And what have you driven apart from a bus? Uh, I've driven Arctics. I've tramped across Europe, driving to France every weekend. Uh, I've driven uh, mobile cranes. Wow. Um, I've driven heavy plant machinery, diggers, bulldozers, anything that moves, I've driven it. Good lad. And, and you I, must have... You, driving you, to me is not a job, Joe. It's an absolute hobby. I love it. Love it. Great. Great. Yeah. And have you had any... You must music. have had tips in your 56 years driving. You must, sorry, you must have had... You must have had a couple of accidents. Hopefully um, not. No, I had... Um, uh, a lorry of my own in 2001, mm-hmm. and uh, a spring bar broke on the back axle, and the back axle came out under it, and I went through a hedge. Okay. Now, lucky enough, I went left instead of right, and uh, my son was with me. He was fired into the windscreen. If the windscreen had broken, he was gone out under the front wheel, but lucky enough, it didn't break. Okay. And uh, the next day, he was going out to his driving test for uh, to drive uh, trucks. So there's discrimination both within, well, it's a semi-state body. And by the way, yeah. the, the reason why Bus Aaron were in the news over the last few days is that the government yeah. have said in, on their wish list is yeah. to improve dramatically the school bus system. Uh, yeah. In other words, for the radius would change, the proximity would change, the proximity rules would change as well. But then the response from Bus Aaron is, we can't get drivers. <laughs> Yeah, they can't get them. There's loads of them out there, Joe. Fellas like me, who are quite able to drive. As a matter of fact, I would consider myself a very professional driver compared to a lot of people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, most guys like me who drive big trucks, who drive coaches, are very professional about what we do. And all bus airing have to do is put an ad in the paper, and I guarantee you they'll get all the drivers they want. Guys of my age. And imagine who are willing uh, to go out with with, you know. with fifty six years experience of driving. Yeah, exactly. And Jerry, I was in the Foyle car park centre in Derry there on uh, Tuesday. Yeah, and I met a, um, a lad, 
And he said to me, he says, my man, he says, it's at me all the time. He wants me to drive. He says, full time for him. He says, I, I'm too old for it. And I said, then what age are you? He's in 74. So I joined the club. I'm the same age. So I enjoy it while you have it. No point in sitting at home waiting to die. Coach driver Jerry Martin talking to Joe Duffy about ageism in the industry on Liveline this afternoon. The movie event of the year, or so Warner Brothers wants us to think, opens today. Denis Villeneuve's epic Dune Part 2 has a spectacular cast and is so grand the studio is hoping you'll have to see it on the biggest screen possible. This morning, Oliver Callan was joined by Olivia Fahey, editor of Geek Ireland, and Paul Markey of the IFI in Dublin to review the biggest film since, well, Dune Part 1. So for me, as much as it is like visually spectacular and the score is absolutely brilliant, hmm. I actually just found that the first, say, hour, it just dragged on so long. And I actually found that the end of part one kind of ended in a very similar fashion. So it definitely picked up right where part one left off in that sense. <laughs> and I actually, it just, it, I just could not get into it for at least a solid hour. And there was even a couple of sequences in there that it wasn't necessarily clear that it was actually jumping a few, like a bit of a timeline jump in between the scenes. I actually thought that it was a continuation of the scenes. doesn't help that it's all in the desert and it doesn't look very different. But, looks, yeah. um, that for me, I, it just took me out of it a little bit. But then the minute that Austin Butler came onto the screen, suddenly the story just really picks up and you're just hooked from there on. Brilliant. Uh, did you love the first one? I didn't love it. Okay. I actually, because it just didn't really know where to end for me, I just felt yeah. that I think I'm so used to seeing films that once you get that big crescendo with like a battle or something like that, yeah, totally it kind of just dies down a little bit, but it's still, you end on a bit of a high. Whereas this, I felt it kind of just kept going in a kind of downward spiral sort of thing and you just didn't know where it was going to end. There was a few different points where it looked like that's where it was leading to. But it, it just kept going then afterwards. So where it did finish off, it was a good point, but it just took a bit too long for me to get there. This is part one you're talking about still? That was for part one, yes, yeah. yeah. For because, part two, um, I, find, I found the was ending was much, much better. Much better, because there is an ending, whereas the first one is, is half a story, isn't it? That's the idea. Uh, if, <laughs> Pretty if, much, yeah. Olivia, if someone doesn't know anything about Dune and they're kind of thinking, science fiction, that's not for me, I'm not going to see that. They're kind of wrong, first of all, aren't they? I mean, can you describe it to people who, who aren't familiar with this universe? So there's a couple of different comparisons you can make. And while there's a lot that you can do with, in terms of sci-fi, um, I was chatting with someone recently and they were like, is it a bit something like Hamlet? And I was like, actually, I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but <laughs> there's definitely a comparison that can be made there. So it is this young guy whose father uh, is offered this big new job and essentially the people who had been doing the job want it back and it ends up being a big fight over this position. And I think that's kind of in layman's terms how you can describe it, but without spoiling too much, there is a bit more kind of linkage to the Hamlet tale in that sense of, you know, how the battle's going on and the results of it and how in part two, you know, it's up to Paul now to try and... I don't want to say reclaim his throne, but, you know, reclaim his throne. <laughs> he does, yeah. He's going around to reclaim this desert planet and water is obviously very uh, pertinent to the whole story. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Markey, um, do you concur with that? Is it? Yeah, for the for the most part, um, it is 
there is it's unclear sometimes with the timeline how long is he out in the desert and you know it, it's partly biblical like he's, he's on the run essentially in the yes. first film isn't he and that's and how he, he ends up in the desert he's with um, you know uh, the Fremen they're called they're free men I think it's direct from mm. but um, sometimes you're kind of wondering how long is he out in the desert they think he's a messiah like how long is that really taking so there's a couple of jumps in there I think just probably being edits or they, it, it was initially I, I, I suspect longer than two hours and 45 minutes which is the running time of the that's film. the running time of part yeah. two Do you, did you enjoy it? I did um, I usually often I'm very much as I've gotten older the shorter the movie the better I find so I'm very particular about long films and I didn't find I didn't find this one dragged for me because um, uh, as Olivia pointed out the pace does pick up after you get your, your feet stuck in the desert for the first hour, the pace picks up a lot after that. Very and good. you start to really get into the machinations of what's going on between the, the houses that are fighting over, over the rights for the spices, the spice. Tell us what the spice is. It's essentially it's narcotic. <laughs> and because, you know, Frank Herbert comes from those books originally came out in 1965. 1965 so, is original, yeah. Yeah, so it, it comes from magic mushrooms. It would make sense with yeah, that era of from that period of, of experimentation. Um, um, but uh, they weren't initially hugely successful uh, at all, but they really gained momentum, momentum over years. And more of them were published until they became a cornerstone for science fiction uh, at the time, massively, 70s, massively yeah. inf influential. Yes, uh, we wouldn't have science fiction. No, no, they, they, George, the Chilean, it's uh, Chilean filmmaker Jordanowski who initially tried to make a film out of this. Legendarily <laughs> tried to make one of this. Now, uh, just a warning: yeah. we're going deep dive nerd at the moment. But tell us about Jordanowski, and uh, feel free to jump in here, Olivia, because there's no doubt you know who this man is. He set out to make yeah, this. Like it's yeah, it, a, it was. A, a, it's a big story and a big book and a lot of people have been, you know, fans of it for so long that it has been nice to see it be adapted onto the big screen in such a big, epic way, especially compared to the, the original adaptation, which was definitely more uh, campy, shall we say. Yeah. But Jodorowsky, he was the first one. He wanted to make the Dune film and the movie was never made, but all of his kind of preparation, the work he did becomes massively influential. Uh, why? Can you, can you explain how? Well, uh, the, the, when he failed to get the money together, um, the book, he did create a book which compiled all his pre-production work, all the paintings and drawings, the script and his potential casting into a huge tome. And this circulated Hollywood for years and it influenced everything. Uh, Star Wars Star Wars uh, The Fifth Element so many films um, you can even argue Stargate the massive uh, television oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, that book only 20 copies were ever made and I think there's only six left in circulation and it's uh, the last copy went for 3 million uh, at auction some years ago but um but the design of creatures and everything. Yes, the design um, of uh, basically the tone. Uh, it was much more psychedelic, yeah. as you can imagine. Uh, like all the different uh, families or the houses so all had their own style and fashion. Again, the story is about all these feuding families yes. trying to take control of this planet. Essentially. Anyway, if yeah. we've lost anyone. Kind of Game of Thrones, but in the, in the desert and so on. Yeah. Uh, but he got a designer, a really influential designer for the uh, film that was never made. Yeah, uh, Mebius, or Mebius, the French uh, graphic artist, and uh, Dan O'Bannon, who went on to write Alien. And you can even see some influences of the style of Jordanowski's ideas in, in Alien and, and itself. And Giger. And Giger, yes, who, yeah. who went, really did all the creature 
uh, designed because of the giant worm. Con- there's other I mean, the, the, concepts. The, 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 when you see the the images that Giger creates for the movie that's not made, yeah, it's it's the Alien film. Yes, it's exactly. Ridley Scott's yeah. entire Alien universe. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It's uh, it it just influenced so many people, um, uh, directly or indirectly. You know, because once films were created, influenced by it, those films then pre- influenced other movies. So I think George Arthur's kind of proud. It's the most influential film never made. And there's uh, a great documentary about it. We have a clip of it here, and you you capture just how much of a how much of a character Jodorowsky is. Talk about Dune. What do you want to do? I say Dune. I say yes. I didn't read Dune, but I have a friend who said it was fantastic. David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Dali as the Mad Emperor of the Galaxy. Dali, they cannot have a burning giraffe. All right, all right, we'll have burning giraffe. Or somewhere. Yeah, I say, I don't want to do it. I say, if you do the picture, I will hire the chef of the restaurant and you will eat as here every day. And I say, I do it. Giger, he makes the monster of Alien. And Hollywood start to use my group. <laughs> That's a clip from that documentary. <laughs> but it's interesting, he's talking about, you know, the world that he creates. And this is why uh, we're so fascinated and you become slightly obsessed with Dune. Isn't, it? isn't that fair to say, Olivia? Honestly, it is. And I think you can even hear it there, just that his passion, it really just emulates out of him, which is... To me, I always find that really infectious because when people are really passionate about something, you can just tell and that makes you more inclined to want to see it. So even sometimes when I'm reviewing a film, if, if even if I'm kind of like, look, I enjoyed it, even though other people may say that it wasn't a good film, if I enjoyed it and I'm really passionate about it, people are like, oh, maybe I'll give it a go then. And I think it's just a case of, it's just a difference of a vibe kind of thing because if someone's just kind of like poo-pooing over something, you're kind of like, oh, well, I don't really want to be getting involved in that. All will be revealed from today when we all brave the snow to go and watch the actors braving the sand and the sandworms in the epic Dune Part 2, which got a decent enough review from Olivia Fahey, editor of Geek Ireland, and Paul Markey of the IFI in Dublin on this morning's Oliver Callan. We've been hearing a lot recently about the cost and the regulation of special emergency arrangements for children who are in state care. I made calls for these unregulated placements to end. Today with Clareburn reporter Brian O'Connell spoke with one mother about her son's case. I suppose just to take you back to last week, we were able to report just how much the state was paying to private operators for these special emergency arrangements, which are used to support and keep safe some of our most vulnerable children, many of whom have complex needs. Now, these spaces are used when regulated spaces are not available and they can be hotels, houses, apartments. The issue arises because these services, they're not inspected by HICWA. They're not regulated in the way, say, foster homes or different types of residential care would be. Toothless say they conduct audits but as we saw in reporting uh, in the Irish Times this week there are serious issues around guard vetting uh, being provided uh, perhaps by one provider uh, the standard of checks of staff were reported to be inadequate in at least one setting now since our report last week I have as you said been contacted by a number of people with concerns by social workers uh, people in the legal profession and by families of people who are currently in one of these placements and you want to bring us one family's experience this morning I'm 
and we're not going to identify in which county this family has been accessing services, but this parent got in touch with us and she says she has been asking questions of Tusler around the standard of care her son is receiving for the past number of years. He was placed in an SEA, a special emergency arrangement. She believes there are serious questions around the level of training some staff who were meant to be supervising her son had around the appropriateness of this kind of service for children who, many of whom have very complex needs and around why exactly the state is spending so much on a service she believes has had very uh, little positive impact on her son. We know over 70 million euro, for example, was spent on this type of care last year. This is some of this parent's experience with SEAs and she began, Claire, by telling me about her son and about his needs. Things have been very, very difficult. He, you know, he, he had very complex issues and, you know, I, I've had problems over the years, I suppose, getting proper diagnosis and getting the proper interventions in care. But my understanding all along was that he would now um, he would now get the help that I that we'd been looking for. First place when it broke down because the help didn't come. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why he ended up then in a hotel, his first hotel. So these are the special emergency arrangements. And he's been in a number of these settings, I'd imagine. So thus far, he's been in two hotels, three apartments in one location, um, another apartment in another location, a house, another apartment, a house. And all with, I think we've dealt with four different agencies. To your mind, in terms of the standard of care, how would you describe it? Very basic. I mean, I did joke that, you know, I could set up an agency. If they were trained at all, it was at a very low level, maybe a FETAC level five social care. They weren't qualified or equipped to deal with um, with any child or any person with complex issues. It was a babysitting service and not a particularly good one at that. And the providers would have to declare that their staff meet certain criteria, but it's essentially unregulated. Oh, absolutely. They were described by social workers as an ad hoc arrangement and an emergency arrangement. And four years later, he was still... I suppose, being supported by staff from, from one of these agencies. So that's that's not emergency as, as far as I know it. Now, Brian, last week we know people who were listening will remember you interviewed Nuala Ward in the Ombudsman for Children's Office and Nuala had strong words to say about those placements. Well, she called for these practices to end. She outlined concerns the Ombudsman has around these arrangements. She felt we were, in a sense, repeating some of the mistakes of the past around care by relying on these services. And she pointed to the fact they've actually stopped using these kinds of uh, care model in the UK. We know Tusla said each child in these arrangements has access to a social worker but I asked a parent we just heard from what level of supervision was there in these placements in relation to her son? For instance in the first hotel he was in there was an adjoining room so there was a you know there was a door into into the room next door. He was on his own in his room and as far as I was aware there were two staff on duty at any given time. I went to visit him one day. I sat in the room with them for an hour. I never heard, saw or heard any of the staff. And when I was leaving, I knocked in. I only saw one staff member and they were in bed asleep. I know there was another occasion when he had another young person in the room with him for an afternoon and evening. And the staff were never aware that that other person was in the room. Okay, next door so clearly concerns around supervision. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, he regularly left the hotel. What have Tusla said to you when you've uh, made complaints or when you've 
asked about the service? They would say that that's very concerning. That's very worrying. Thank you for letting us know. Um, we know these aren't ideal arrangements, etc., etc. And I know from speaking with the Ombudsman's Office last week, they essentially called for this practice to end. What would you be saying as a parent? I, I would be saying, absolutely, I mean, absolutely, uh, this practice should end. He was in care to get, I suppose, in the hope that he would receive appropriate um, intervention to, you know, to help him with his complex needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the failings in that end of things, all the way up to these, uh, these, these special arrangements, there's just been a breakdown the whole way along in, in his care, I suppose. It's so costly. We know he needs X, Y, and Z. Um, if these, if these, I suppose, um, interventions were put in place, he could be back home much sooner and not costing the state so much. And Brian, you had a statement from Tusla in relation to this. Well, we shared some of the details with Tusla. Tusla say they cannot comment on individual cases. When an individual person or family enters a relationship with the public service, they are entitled to expect that information generated in that relationship is treated in confidence. It's critically important in the subject matters in which Tusla is involved. They say if an individual has a concern about a Tusla service or is unhappy about their experience of engaging with a Tusla service. It's important they report their concern directly to a staff member or provide feedback through our TELUS process. I do know, Claire, that the child in question is not in care currently. I also know the family did make multiple complaints, including to senior management level during the course of previous care when issues arose. OK, now the issue of special emergency arrangements, that it was debated yesterday in Leinster House, wasn't it? There's a significant amount of political focus on this issue now. Uh, someone who has raised this a number of times is AN2 leader and Meath West TD, Padder Tobin. This is some of what he had to say in the Dáil yesterday. Last week on RTE Radio, Tusa CEO stated that staff and SEAs were absolutely vetted. Now we know that an internal Tusla report in July found that staff did not have up-to-date Garda clearance. Why are you underfunding the voluntary and the regulated sectors? And that is at the heart of this this, uh, situation. They cannot provide the necessary places because they are underfunded, Minister. And, you know, the fact is we're pumping astronomical money into dodgy profit-motivating companies with poorer, unregulated services. That's Pather Tobin. And then the Public Accounts Committee, as per their remit, focused on the financial side of these arrangements and just how much it's costing the state. Absolutely. The PAC, PAC took interest in these special emergency arrangements. Uh, they were presented with evidence that the amount Tusla is spending on emergency rented accommodation has risen more than tenfold in recent years. Labour TD Alan Kelly said the increasing use of special emergency arrangements is quite worrying and he described the rising cost as incredible. As we reported last week, the bill, as I said, for last year was over €70 million. Euro. One of the reasons given for the increase in demand for services was unaccompanied young people seeking international national protection in Ireland, for example. Tusla CEO Kate Duggan said there had been a 500% increase in demand for Tusla services. She said we've had to respond to 1,200 young people who turn up in our office, brought from the IPO office, who on that night have to be found a bed. Last week, she said there were about 115 young people in an emergency arrangement. She said along with 61 young people from what they call their mainstream system. Uh, Numbers have doubled, she said, since she joined the agency. All right. Brian O'Connell reporting on the controversial special emergency arrangements for children who are in state care on Today with Claire Byrne this morning.
Musicians Leslie Dowdle and Mark Caplice made an appearance on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. They braved the snow to have a chat with Ray and play an old tune or two. So how did you two end up together? Uh, well, well, I was working for Music Generation and Mark was going to partially work for Music Generation, but he came in, I was just showing him the ropes yeah. and he'd just come out of the back of... I won't mention that word. No. All right. Yeah, so anyway, so basically we met in Music Generation. That's how we met. A, a Music Generation is what? Is a, music, is a teaching education for... Ch- Children in all schools, music. Right, okay. And it's, yeah, well, yeah. it's mostly um, the tutors are all musicians. Great. Uh, we've spoken to you about it before, Leslie. It's, yes. it's brilliant. And uh, amazing, music yes. is so important, isn't it, for, for children? It'd be great Absolutely. if everybody yeah. learned. Yeah, it's fantastic. I teach 700 yeah. kids a week. Do you? A lot, yeah. Good Lord. It's been nuts, but it's fantastic. And the yeah. kids love it and they, they flourish. On and it. are you teaching now, Mark? Yeah, no, no. So yeah. it was around the time, yeah. it was a few years ago, and I was looking at different uh, options just for income-wise and stuff. So I jumped in and I was teaching for a few months and it was lots of fun and it was lots of crack but yeah, not for me I, 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 I called He's the lying. sled dogs and I said let's get out here because uh, yeah well, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be making a full time living from like producing and writing Great. and performing now so yeah I yeah, just had to yeah. take that well it's jump. a bit of a vocation isn't it Leslie teaching it is yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, do you wear headphones when you're or, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> earplugs yeah, yeah. earplugs no, no that when, when I come home well, because yes. I'm, I'm learning to play drums at the moment. I, oh, good they, man. They, they know. But the guy who's teaching me, he does wear protective, <laughs> protective yeah, yeah. headphones. Oh, yeah, sometimes they do. Well, some of the kids, you know. Yeah, they find I would it. always, yeah. always bring earplugs. No matter, no matter where I go. Exhibit E? He has them. Right there, yeah. yeah. Right me by you wearing o- them? Always. Every, yeah. every gig. Because you never know, like, especially in, like, I'm living between Ireland and London at the moment and when you're in London the tube and the, no- the noise level in general is just yeah uh, through the roof through the yeah, roof yeah. exactly yeah so you I think I've seen one of these before but I don't really know you, you, so you have a guitar which is fine I do and, uh, and but on the floor you have what a shooty box a what shooty box yeah shooty box so how do you pre- spell it s-h-r-u-t-t-i right shooty yeah as in tutti frutti shooty. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I believe it's from Indian descent, is, yeah. uh, and it comes from like meditation, and it's very like a drone for for chanting. Yeah, yeah. chanting whatever you fancy yourself, you know. And I, when I came down earlier on, yeah. you were tuning it. Yeah, well, the the, the shruti box itself stays within a fairly close parameter like it's generally in the same kind of tuning but if it gets a small bit of a nudge it can change yeah okay. so you so generally have to tune the guitar to the Shruti box so to describe it to people at home it, it's like a wooden briefcase yeah. uh, with a bellows inside and holes on yeah. one side um, you that, and you can vary the aperture of the hole yeah and then you have a, a foot pedal which is attached to it <laughs> Uh, and you can you open and close the, the lid of yeah. the of the of the briefcase. It's yeah. called a bow ring, actually. A which a bow ring, it's called to the pedal. Aha, that's the official right. name. Yeah. 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 So your Leslie and Mark are releasing a cover version of the song they're about to the sing now uh, uh, on the twenty sixth of April, and there's tours. Uh, there is a tour dates in the UK and Ireland, including the National Library on May twenty second. Leslie Dowdall, Mark Hapless, uh, yeah. and this is the song you've recorded, and I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now.
rose and flows of angels' hair, and ice cream castles in the air, and feathered canyons everywhere. Float the clouds that way. Now they only block the sun. They rain, they snow on everyone. So many things I would have done if clouds got in my way. Look to clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow it's cloud illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Moons and dunes and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing where you feel is every fairy tale comes real. I've looked at love that way. Now it's just another show. You leave him laughing when you go. And if you care, don't let them know. Don't give yourself away. Looked at love from both sides. Don't give and take, and still somehow it's love's illusions I recall. I really don't know love. I really don't know love at Johnny Mitchell's Both Sides Now performed live this afternoon on the Ray Darcy Show by Leslie Dowdle and Mark Kaplis. Finally on this episode of Playback Daily, Claire Byrne thought she would mark the first day of meteorological spring by having a gardening item, little suspecting, of course, that the snowpocalypse would render the first day of spring rather more winter-like than usual. Still, Gardener Marie Staunton and DIY expert Catherine Carton gamely togged out for the weather-affected slot. The weather will get better, we hope, in March. We'll have some bright days and there are jobs that we need to do. So where do we need to start? Okay, so at the moment, um, you will be getting kind of dahlias ready and things like that. So maybe you took dahlias out of the ground last year. They're the big tubers, beautiful flowers in the middle of the summer to the back end of the summer. So you can take them out of where you've stored them and pop them up, get them ready for um, um, spring and into summer. And what they'll produce is little green shoots. And you can actually take cuttings off those if you want to um, 
make more of uh, your dahlias. So that's kind of a little job you could be get, get, getting done at the minute. Again, you can start seedlings off. You can pe- prepare the ground for um, getting your potatoes in if you're going to grow a few potatoes. Um, so if there isn't, you know, we, we could get a very nice day tomorrow when we had a beautiful day yesterday. So things will move on and we will have to get uh, started. If you've got things to still move around in the garden, you have a little opportunity this weekend to dig up shrubs and move them maybe to where you um, should have put them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's another little job you could get done. And just anything tidied up, like there'd be leftover bits from um, herbaceous perennials that maybe are looking rather raggy at the moment. So you can cut them back and, um, you know, really kind of give the the garden a little bit of a spruce. And aren't we on the clock when it comes to pruning roses? You are on the clock when it comes to pruning rose. Very good, Claire. Very good. See, I it's, remember um, that. That's yeah. something to tell my husband to do now when I get home. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> it's, um, it's, yeah, you have, you have, this is your opportunity. So you're cutting back to an outward facing bud along um, your rose, your, your rose stems. The idea is that you get loads of open space in the centre of the rose bush because that's, allows good air circulation. It also allows for um, better blooming of flowers. And take out some old stems. You know, you, you want the young, vigorous stems. So you can cut back kind of hard, especially if they're um, rose bushes, hybrid teas, that sort of thing. If they're climbers, take out one or two stems. Um, and if they're ramblers, you won't be able to get up to the very top. So you maybe take out a really old stem. But the idea is to cut to an outward facing bud because as the sap rises, the extension growth will go out towards where you cut. So if it's an outward facing bud, the lovely extension growth will go out, not back in okay. and clutter up the centre. Yeah. OK, so you need to be a little bit clever about it. Now, you can tell himself that. Yeah, yeah oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> Catherine, I love seeing the extra light coming in a little bit earlier in the day then into the afternoon you know when you're inside it's just so nice to see that light coming through but then I look at the windows and I think there's a job I have to do and you have tips on that front windows, skirting boards, doors. It's this time of year when that light changes and it just hits differently. And especially with all the storms and the snow and everything, the windows are not looking too fresh. So this time of year, my favourite thing to clean windows is white vinegar and distilled water. Um, If you don't have distilled water, you could use normal water. So 50-50 in a spray bottle. Give it a good shake. And I use this on, I use this on skirting boards. I use this on the windows. I use it to clean down the doors. And I don't know if you ever fall down the rabbit hole on the internet when it comes to cleaning videos. Yeah. I sometimes end up on like, yeah, cleaning TikToks or whatever. And uh, if you're ever looking for a bit of a motivation, but one thing I notice is they all have these fancy gadgets, which we do not need. I see people washing their walls down with these fancy mops. Uh, You don't need anything like that. But one thing I do find that's handy, especially for someone who is short is the extendable squeegees so if you do have you know high windows and you don't want to pay someone to come out and do them you can get extendable squeegees um if you need to tackle them and they're also great at just knocking i know it's like the cobwebs in the corner above a window it's this time of year when i start to notice them more than uh, any other time throughout winter Mm -hmm. so uh, just going back to your method of cleaning the windows in particular so your water and vinegar solution are you just using a cloth there or do you use newspaper? 
I use a cloth. You can definitely use newspaper, but I do find that by using um, just a normal uh, cloth um, that it will leave it streak free. But people have, I've heard of people using like Coca-Cola to clean their windows and using newspaper as well. And just with the vinegar, make sure that it's the white vinegar because if you use the malt, it might smell a bit oh, like yeah. chips. So use the white vinegar. The Coca-Cola thing now is a mystery. I haven't heard that one before. Like surely that would be sticky, no? I imagine it would, but there's all these cleaning hacks that you see kind of on the internet. And I think it's just to be cautious and just stick with like the old favourites and the old reliables. You can't go wrong with a bit of vinegar and water solution. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a, a reasonable point to make, Catherine. And you're using that solution on the skirting boards as well, because you're dead right. As soon as that light starts coming in, you start seeing things that you ha- probably haven't noticed throughout the winter. Yeah, and a couple of tips. So if you are thinking this time of year, some people might be thinking, right, I'm going to touch up the woodwork. I have some chips um, on the paint. So if you are touching up any chippy paint, um, my best tip is if you have chips in the skirting board, get some sandpaper and lightly sand the area where you have a chip. Sand back as much of the chipped and flaky paint as you can. Give it a wipe with some sugar soap and then prime it with a primer. And then you can paint over it with the top coat that was already on so another thing people find is if they're skirting boards maybe they have white doors and skirting boards I'm sorry I think that's uh, my ring doorbell going off sorry <laughs> that's all right <laughs> the joys of uh, doing at home interviews um so if you find that your paintwork goes yellow it could be because that an oil-based paint was used so gloss paint is generally oil-based and satin is usually water-based so if you find maybe you've moved into a new house or there's old paint and you notice that it's going yellow it's because the oil can bleed through over time and you get that discoloration. Mm -hmm. So gloss paint is generally more durable, but I prefer to use satin um, because you don't get that yellowing because it's water-based. So So if you do need to paint... Yeah, it might last a bit longer. Yeah. And if you need to paint over um, any oil-based paint, just make sure that you prime it first with a stain block and primer. So if you go into any of the like independent decor shops, they'll recommend something that you can put over it to stop it bleeding through. So okay. if you go and try and put a satin over an oil, it's not going to make. DIY expert Catherine Carton and gardening guru Marie Staunton talking all things spring. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for it on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. I'll be back with more ramblings at the same location on Monday. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.